Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. Once you've tested this episode, if you're happy with the results of the experiment, why not head over to onenightinproduct.com where you can sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or follow the podcast on social media, and guarantee you never miss another episode again. Lab coats optional. On tonight's episode, we talk about experimentation and what to do once you've had an idea for your business or product and what to find out if it's any good. We talk about some of the ways you might do that, why it's important that you do, and how you might need to shape the organization to support it. We talk about experimental ethics, the importance of experimenting with people and not on them, and how we might persuade skeptical business leaders who just want to build, build, build to come along for the ride, and why it's so important that they do. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is David J. Bland. David's a former reality TV show host and published poet who started out just like me, working in a call center. But unlike me, managed to abort that career experiment almost as soon as it began, with initial results looking unpromising. He then moved on to the big wide world of tech and realized there was something to this whole lean thing and moved into consultancy to help companies move from big batches to small batches and make sure their next big thing is actually worth building. David's the co-author of Testing Business Ideas, a practical field guide for rapid experimentation, which will give us all loads of ideas for activities to do while we're waiting for our CEOs to overrule us. Hi, David. How are you tonight? I'm great. Thanks for having me. No problem. It's good to have you here. So your book's been out for a couple of years now, so I'm not going to go through the usual dance of asking you how the reception has been and all of that stuff, because, you know, that's, that's old news for you now, right? But what I did notice recently, as it's part of the Strategizer series, is there's this really handsome Strategizer box set that's just come out, sort of thing that'll look fine on anyone's bookshelf. So what's the story behind that series and that box set? Is that something where you've gone and updated the book for the release, or is that the same book, but just in a nice package? It's the same book for now. You know, the book's been out two years, so I'm collecting case studies and thinking through some changes I might make to it with Alex. But the box set is more the publisher's idea. You know, that's Wiley saying this great set of books should be packaged together. And so it's a really good stack. It's literally like when we say a stack of books, it's literally a stack. Like there's business model, value <laughs> prop, testing business ideas, invincible company, high performance teams. There's like all this stuff that like focuses on different aspects, but it's all connected. It's pretty cool. So there's a little bit of money making for the publisher there as well, but it also basically makes any person basically a business person just by reading it, right? I mean, it's cheaper than an MBA. And the way I've <laughs> written the book, it's really all the all the tools I use when I'm coaching teams. So I think some of the best, I got two really great pieces of advice from my editor at Wiley. One was call the book what it does, which is testing business ideas. Yeah. I tried to be really cute. And I was like, oh, we should call it executing ideas because you're executing, but you're really executing. And everyone's like, no, 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 don't do that. So we called it testing business ideas. And the other piece of advice he gave me was, hey, just basically uh, write the book as if you were coaching teams. And that really helped me put in the right frame of mind of how I would you know, put the words down because I was it's like, hey, I'm running of teams all the time and helping them through this stuff. And let me just write in that cadence and in that tone. So that really helped me. And, and so what you get is a little snapshot into you know, what it's like to be coached and going through this process. But it's also a very visual book as well, very stylized and very graphical when you go through it. So it's not just like a big wadge of text. It's like there's a lot of diagrams, a lot of basically infographic style elements. And that's not something that you see in all business books. It's not something that I've seen in many books around sort of discovery and experimentation. Lean Startup doesn't look like that, right? 
Was that a conscious decision from yourself or from Alex, or was that something that the publisher pushed for? Like, how did that really visual aspect come into it? Yeah, that was mostly Alex. You know, this was my first big published book. You know, I had tried to write other books and they're kind of half saved Scrivener files somewhere in Dropbox, <laughs> right? I have, a, I have a plenty, plenty of those. And it was really like almost like me relearning the writing process. So, Alex. It was like Alex and Eve really doing business model generation and value prop design. There were a lot of that with Alan being the head, this lead designer, right? And so the conceptual part, you know, I've written about this and given a few talks about it, but I do think there's something to be said about how do you test a book? Because we went through sticky notes to concepts. You know, Alex was really big on, well, we can't have really heavily weighted concepts on one side of the spread and, and really light ones on the other and make it offset. And I had never really thought and uh, really even thought about a book that way. And so we iterated through the book almost like you would a product. And it was really amazing. We had actually a professional illustrator from the UK. We had Owen Pomery hand draw the illustrations. And then even that whole process was like, sometimes I would say, this is what it should look like. And then other times I was like, just be creative and, 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 and draw something for me. And I would record myself looking at it, giving him feedback. And then he would iterate on the professional illustration. So Overall, we had three designers. We had Alan, Trish, and Chris out of Toronto. And then we had Owen doing the professional illustrations. It was really amazing process to see it kind of come to fruition, but definitely a lot of time and effort. And it's it very intentional. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I think that there's something to be said for this idea that picture-based books really hit another part of the brain as well. So maybe help you to process the information in a different way, which you know, I'm not sure if I could necessarily justify that statement, but it's certainly a discussion that I've had before with other people that have written books and tried to get some visual elements in or you know, get lots of diagrams in to really try and help that resonate with you because there's this whole argument that people think in pictures, right? It is. And I thought just the, the topic, I, I felt it would be really intimidating to people. You know, they're like going back <laughs> to science class in school and going, oh no, this is too much pressure for me. I don't want to work this way. And so we yeah. just tried to make it very friendly and lighthearted and Anything that felt really heavy, I tried to pull out of the book and just try to make it very relatable and, and, and not in an intimidating, like, oh my gosh, scientific method. It's so overwhelming <laughs> with all its nuance. Like, I really just tried to make it accessible to everyone. But to avoid putting words in your mouth, what's the core value proposition of the book? Like, what problem does it help people solve or help companies solve? It's really helping people not to build things that nobody wants, right? So it's kind of <laughs> the idea that. You're, you have a vision and you're open to the idea of it being wrong. And, and so I think that's why testing business ideas, you know, I get a lot of feedback from the community around, well, where do you get those ideas from and all of this? And maybe we can touch on that in our conversation today. However, yeah. people almost always come to me with ideas. They already have ideas. It wasn't like the idea was the problem. It was yeah. how do you shape that idea? What does it end up being? And so I personally lived at a couple startups, right? We thought we were B2C, we ended up being B2B companies. And it was like, well, that's a huge change. And like our vision's still there, but the way it, it came to fruition was very different than how we imagined it. So that's really where I try to focus on is like, you already have an idea. That's great. That's almost like the easy part. <laughs> how do you go test it against <laughs> reality? Well, let's talk about where you get those ideas from, as you just mentioned yourself as well. Like, I guess what we're saying there is that the book explicitly doesn't try to cover that as such it's, it's taking an idea that, uh, that you've got the kind of the genesis of an idea and it's then helping you to work out whether you should build that or not but is it like there are other books in that box set that help you get to that idea stage or is that something that you have to kind of work out yourself and there's not really any support for that within this kind of ecosystem of strategizer stuff 
I think a lot of the value prop design book helps with some of that. And to an extent, maybe even business model generation, because you're thinking about how do you generate different types of business models. Yeah. But, you know, with the value prop book, they already go into, you know, Alex, it was really great at kind of visualizing jobs, pains and gains of a customer, your value proposition, what are your products and services, what are your pain relievers, what are your gain creators and how does that fit and all that. And I felt like I started incorporating a lot of that into the book and I was like, you know, this doesn't need to be in here. And Alex and I had this conversation. We actually cut it because I had all the double diamond stuff and, and all this. And I do believe in all of that. Yeah. But I was like, you know what? This book needs to start where people already have something to work with and helping them shape it and, and, and test it and look at risk through design thinking. And so it was really tough for me because I wanted to put everything in there. In reality, it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> most people come to me already with an idea and they already probably looked at customer needs, hopefully, or we're going to find out really quickly that they didn't. <laughs> we could have tested them. So, yeah, it was a really tough choice for me, but it's like the material just seemed redundant. So we ended up yeah. cutting it out of the beginning of the book. That makes a lot of sense. And I think you're right that people tend to have quite a lot of ideas. Maybe we'll come back to how we actually start sorting those out in a short while. But by day, you're running Precoil, which is a consultancy which aims to help people validate their ideas. Same kind of idea that you're talking about in the book, right? So validating their ideas without wasting time and money building stuff that no one wants. And I'm assuming that your consultancy, which predates the book, informed some of the book. Some of the stuff that you mentioned in the book is presumably stuff that we're using in the consultancy. And I'm assuming also that some of the stuff that you then put in the book and some of the stuff from when you researched the book then potentially informed the consultancy as well. So kind of a virtuous circle there. But is there anything that you've discovered since the book when you've been out in the field that you would have put in the book had you been writing it now? Yeah, I, I think in, in reality, maybe like even multiple consultancies fed into this book right so like before pre-coil i was at neo which was kind of like yeah you know eric riesling starts a service thing with ian mcfarlane and gift constable and jeff gothoff was there josh seiden a lot of great like sam mcafee andy plantenberg i could go a list it was amazing <laughs> group of folks even that work you know i've been playing with lean startup like now it's been almost 10 years right since i started reading eric Ries's startup lessons yeah. learn blog and going to lean startup circles and all that even my startup experience I think where I got drawn to that was I was really frustrated some startups where I, I kind of spent the night weekend stuff building and, and nobody cared. <laughs> it didn't really matter how much I built. So I would say even it's like been like a multiple year journey there and to inform the book. And then, you know, there's always stuff you go back and change. I feel like the strength of evidence is something Alex and I have been really kind of working through because I don't think people understand the nuances. It's there in the book, but I, I think it needs to be more prominent. Yeah. And so we reframed it as like strong and weak. And then in reality, when we're presenting evidence to, let's say, stakeholders and people for funding decisions, we've been reframing weak as, as light evidence. And it's, it's maybe sounds kind of silly, but I, I do think it, the difference matters because it's not that the teams weren't doing work, right? It's just yeah. the light qualitative evidence generated from, let's say, customer interviews and surveys and that kind of stuff. It's still valuable. You can use the quotes there in your future experiments. But I, I think that framing is, didn't quite land. So I think yeah. I'd really come back to the strength of evidence again. And I don't know if everybody understands the dots, like because we visualize everything with the taxonomy. <laughs> and so sometimes the dots are outlined, sometimes they're filled in. I don't think that felt like really landed with everybody. So I think there are some tweaks. And then just loading it up with more case studies, because I work on so many interesting things. Oh, I, I wish I could just talk about them. But of course, I'm surrounded by NDAs. And then it's hard for me to get my clients to even go out and speak about them because it's all new stuff. 
And so I, I do think now that the book's been out a couple of years, I am definitely revisiting the idea of case studies and I've seen more companies use it. So definitely more case studies. And I would probably tweak the evidence bit uh, a little. But no new techniques that have kind of come about since then. Are they all, uh, are you kind of, I mean, you've got sometimes 40 plus different techniques that you mentioned in the book. So are they all kind of the tried and tested best ways that you still go out there and help people? Or have you kind of started inventing new ones or portmanteaus or combinations of those that are almost becoming different things themselves? Well, I think there are plenty of techniques beyond the 44 we included in the book. And some of them get classified as research and everything. And I'm probably a little biased because I frame things in experimentation. Yeah. I would say I'd spend probably a little more time on the sequencing because people literally hold up the book to me and say, these are my favorite two pages in the entire book. And their two pages almost didn't make it in. I, w- I was at the end of the process like, wow, if a B2B company looks through this book, how are they going to tell what experiments are B2B if you're doing hardware or software? And so I, I just spent some time like stringing them together. And I get a bunch of feedback on that saying, oh, we want more of that. Or do I have to follow that? you know, exactly how as you visualize it. I was like, no, no, you can create your own sequences, right? I'm just showing what I've seen in different companies. And so I'd probably spend a little more time than the sequencing because I think that is sort of, you don't want to just run one experiment, right? You want to run multiple over time. Yeah. And, and I think I could probably illustrate that a bit more and give people a little more context around what would make a sequence and how they could create their own. I've always found that if you represent something as a sequence, even if it's not a sequence, and even if you put a caveat on it saying, oh, no, this isn't a sequence, this is just how I'm visualizing it, everyone always just treats it as a sequence anyway, and you're just getting as much trouble as if it was a sequence in the first place. So I've definitely stopped using any kind of arrow-based or you know timeline-based anything. It just causes more trouble than it's worth, to be honest. But who should read this book? Is it aimed primarily at early-stage startups, or is it like those people the maybe pre-product market fit or pre-product solution fit or whatever, or are there goodies in there that you could potentially use all the way up to and including big, massive corporates and all of the things that they have to worry about? Yeah. So I really have like three personas for, and it is really informed by my coaching and my, my real world work, but basically corporate innovators. So even big companies, but it's usually on something new, right? So it's something before you hit product market fit and you're trying to figure out how to create this Usually the companies I work with, they're trying to reimagine what they do in a different way. And so like if I work with a paint company, they're trying to be a color company. So they want to essentially put out things other than paint that are solutions that are, you know, exemplify their domain expertise. There's also startup entrepreneurs for sure. And it's usually, again, before product market fit. So that early stage. And then people with side hustles, you know, sometimes there's an overlap, right? You have somebody at a big corporation and they also have a side hustle. But how do you make that switch from a side hustle to, you know, quitting your job and investing in it, especially during the pandemic? I feel like so many people have been like, you know, this isn't worth it for me. I'm going to start and follow my you know dream and of creating a business and and have my own rules, which, you know, there are pros and cons to. Yeah. And it's for them, too. And I say, you know, it's more about the stage less than the specific person. I think what it doesn't have and, and intentionally so is I didn't put a lot of growth experiments in here. There's not a lot about how do you scale and all that. And so I do feel like there's some other books that do address that topic. But I would say that is one thing that, you know, if I did even kick around the idea of a a follow up, you know, the growth experiments aren't necessarily included in in this volume. And what are some of the preconditions then? So if we take some of the approaches from the book, or of course, the stuff that you're doing in your consulting as well, you're going into a company, you can't just go into a random company and just start running experiments, right? They need to be set up to succeed in that they need to do some things in a certain way to have the best chance of success when they run these experiments and 
part of that you call out in the book as kind of cultural. I'm sure there's other enabling things that they need to do within the company or need to have within the company. So are there any kind of preconditions that you would say the company has to meet before it's actually going to be able to do a good job of running some of these experiments? Or could literally anyone do it? I think with going into companies, there there's some conditions where in the, in the book, I try to say, you know, you have team design, which is almost like the easiest part, right? As far as let me take different types of people and put them together. Granted, they do have to form as a team and all that. But I feel like the behavior is a really big, important part. And then the environment, which I call like overall, like designing environment, the org, and that's on leadership style. So on leadership. And so basically what could happen there is you have this amazing team inside an org. And, and we have seen this with uh, startup acquisitions all the time where a startup gets acquired into a big company and then there's all kinds of friction and they can't do what they used to do. And so I've been on both sides of acquisitions. Like I worked at a startup yeah. that was acquired and I worked at bigger companies that acquired startups. So I feel like I've seen both sides of that. And the environment matters because you can take the really amazing team and put them in an environment where they can't succeed or can't move quickly. They can't talk to customers. They can't get funding. They can't use the tools that they need to use to run the experiments because another group won't let them use those tools because they haven't been approved and all that, right? It goes on and on and on. Yeah. And so when I'm coming into organizations, and I'm working more at the board level and C-level now too over the last few years, I'd really try to emphasize that it's your duty as a leader to kind of design an environment where people can work this way. And so we start looking at those processes and everything. And, and, and they're there for a reason, right? You know, like there was probably something that happened <laughs> at some point in the, in the org and they put in a process to stop that from happening again. But then that had side effects and created other things and they put processes to fix those. And then 20, 25 years later, it's like nobody owns those processes. Nobody knows why they were created in the first place. And so you have to be careful about that. But essentially what I'm trying to do is say, can you have cross-functional teams, you know, product design, engineering, balance teams, and we all sort of agree that it is becoming modern, you know, product. And can you give them some autonomy, some funding, and enough kind of cover to, to let them, you know, make progress and give an account of how they're making progress? So I'm probably a little biased in the sense that the companies reach out for me or are already wanting to do that. Yeah. What I've stopped doing is try to go into companies, convince them that they need to do that because <laughs> I don't believe I can do that. I, I don't think I can convince people that they need to work this way. It's usually them realizing, whoa, we actually have to work a different way here. We need help. And that's the kind of companies I tend to end up working with the most. Yeah, I guess that self-selection is pretty groundbreaking in a way because you don't have to have at least some of the battles. You don't even have to prove that it's a good idea, which is which is always the, the biggest battle when you're trying to transform something. But I also, whilst you were talking, was thinking about this idea that, for example, if you're in a larger company or even a smaller company that's been around for a little bit and you've maybe got a bunch of clients and I'm thinking maybe B2B or B2E sort of serving the enterprise, there's sometimes a real reluctance to experiment on established customers because you don't want to annoy them around contract renewal time and it's always someone's contract renewal time right so like you've always got this dynamic of like well yeah sure we like the idea of experimentation but we don't have anyone to do it on because we've only got 25 customers and they're all too valuable to start playing funny business with is that something that you've come across and managed to solve or are there some companies with their client profile that just are going to be less able to do this sort of thing oh they're definitely constraints i mean if I'm working with a billion dollar corporation or I'm working with a startup that doesn't have any revenue yet, they're definitely different constraints. <laughs> Usually it's a brand. Usually it's like, I don't want to damage the brand. I work with companies yeah. that have a hundred year old brand. They don't want to do anything that's less than perfect because it can't damage the brand. And so that's a lot of the, the pushback I get. 
But I would say something you said there that really stuck out for me that I've been trying to change in my writing and my coaching and everything over the last, I would say, five to 10 years is experimenting with instead of experimenting on, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you say experiment on your customers, you almost have this connotation. It's like, well, we're just going to like bombard them with stuff that they're not expecting (laughs) and they might not react well to it. And 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 when I change it to with, I I feel like that opens this idea that there's more co-creation involved. And especially B2B, everyone just expects you to sell them as soon as you start talking to them. Yeah. And so breaking that framing of, no, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm really trying to understand, is there even a need here before we go off and build anything here? So I think, and I do touch on this with the ethics part in the book, and I intentionally left out experiments that I felt were ex- like experimenting on people in almost like a malicious way, which... I love the Lean Startup community, but sometimes I went to meetups in San Francisco and I was like, ooh, really? You did that? <laughs> like, oh, I think maybe I need to go get a shower now because <laughs> this is like not feeling right to me. And so I do think some of the backlash, I mean, I mean, I'm open to this topic too, but some of the backlash against Lean Startup has been you're, you're just like burning through customers, you're manipulating people and all this. And, yeah. and that's really not what we're trying to uh, accomplish. It's more about I just want to waste all my money building something nobody cares about. So how do I walk that line between not manipulating them, but also like not wasting my time and money and energy and life's work building something that nobody cares about other than me. And so I don't know if we've quite found that balance yet. I have to say I struggle with this internally, even uh, late at night when I can't sleep. (laughs) But uh, what I am trying to do is push the conversation more towards experimenting with and so, you know, invite your customers in to co-create with them, go through this process. And it feels less toxic to me when, when we take that approach. And you're probably not going to lose those 25, you know, customers you have. There are going to be some, not all, but some that will be willing to do that with you. And almost any enterprise I go into or startup, when they look at their customers, there's always like the one or two. They're like, yeah, I'm willing to try something <laughs> with you that I know is not fully baked. And, and those are the ones that maybe you can start with. And, and so. It's a bigger conversation, but I do think ethics and experimentation is becoming more and more yeah. top of mind, especially as we see things get weaponized, you know, globally and the internet and everything. It's just very much like we don't want to be contributing to that in any way. Yeah, well, the ethics thing is really interesting. I mean, there's obviously one company in particular that I can think of off the top of my head. I know we don't want to punch down or up onto anyone tonight, but there's certainly one company I can think of that's been in the news quite a lot around some of the experimentation that they were doing with people's news feeds and stuff like that so probably just giving a game away but like is that something then that you feel requires some kind of oversight or is that something that people can just kind of handle as they go and just apply some best practices some first principles to like how can we make sure aside from not putting things in a book which obviously is one way to try but people can go and find these things elsewhere right like how can we make sure that that people are trying to do this experimentation for good and not starting to do some of these horrible dark design patterns or horrible dark prototypes if that's even a thing to try and kind of manipulate people into thinking things or doing things that validate or invalidate a hypothesis that people want to do that to yeah it's it's really tough you know i think you really can't control how people use what you put out there you know and i think we've had a lot of well-intended pieces put out there over the years and then people weaponized it right so it's like here's a case study on how not to do something let's say on wall street right and then you have a group go this is the playbook of how I'm going to make money. <laughs> and it's like, no, no, <laughs> he literally wrote the book to tell you not to do this. And then people take it and do it. So some of that's out of your control. But I do think just making it clear that, 
you know, I think we can learn a lot from the social sciences. You know, when we look at social sciences, there are some, you know, guidelines there about like do no harm and what you what you should follow. And so I do think if we look at lean startup, a lot of this uh, experimentation inside product business, it seems closer to me to social sciences. I was having a conversation with Tendai Vicky before the pandemic started in our last kind of big in-person workshop uh, masterclass we did in London. We actually did it in Shoreditch. And we had this long conversation about, you know, this feels more like social sciences to me, you know, than anything else. And so I do think we can pull from there and we can pull a lot of great practices. We don't have to recreate everything from scratch today and use that as a guide. And so, but I do think, you know, I've been at conferences where people literally they're like, take the pledge of hold up your hand and, and say, you'll never use this for evil. And I was like, yeah, I mean, you could do that. <laughs> Some people, and I even contemplated that in the book. I was like, let's put like somebody holding up their hand. Let's write a pledge and have people sign it. And I was like, is it really going to have the effect I, I want? Because like, some people, it's just out of your control. So I do think pulling from social sciences, I do think keeping, you know, how could this be misused? How could this be manipulated top of mind when you're, when you're running experiments? And then this idea of with versus on, I think is the core of it. Yeah. You know, a lot of those ones that feel like dark patterns are really, you're being experimented on. Yeah, It's like, I'm going to manipulate you to get this number higher because I have <laughs> some kind of OKR I'm trying to hit, you know? And, and so I do think the with not on is kind of my, my statement I keep coming back to. And who knows, like maybe a future version of the book, I go, mm, this one feels like an on and it's, and I take it out. But, <laughs> you know, it's my thinking is always evolving on this. Yeah, I guess the dark side of writing something like don't do this or calling attention to a piece, like you say, is people kind of gravitate to that part of the book, right? It's kind of like putting sticky notes in or giving people a personal index. Yeah. And in the past, I'm a kind of dry sense of humor and I've created like <laughs> fake frameworks that were completely toxic, that were jokes and people <laughs> wrote little mini books on them and everything. And the reason I didn't keep running with that is I'm like, oh my gosh, people are going to take this and actually implement <laughs> it somewhere and they're not going to realize it's satire. Yeah. And so I've had that backfire me on me a few times and satire today is really weird anyway. Yeah. So I try not to put something out there as like a joke of what not to do. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I had to be really careful with that because I feel like you're giving somebody a how-to guide of how to exploit <laughs> things. Yeah, no April Fool's jokes from you. But the core value prop of the work is, as we discussed, you want to reduce risk, test early, understand whether what you want to build is actually going to resonate with users. And some people are going to sit there and say, well, we already know what our users want. Let's just build that and sell it. Is that something that you've ever seen work? I think it works when you get it right. And I don't know how often that really occurs anymore. Because <laughs> you look at back all these really successful companies, if you kind of start peeling back the layers, it's kind of a winding journey to get to that successful thing. Yeah. And, and again, I learned that first out of college. I was like, I'm going to make millions on the internet, joining the startup. And, and then we realized we were like not a B2C company, we were B2B. So I learned this really early on in my career the hard way because I spent nights and weekends building things, sleeping at my desk and realized, wow, nobody cares. Like <laughs> this is not our customer <laughs> no matter what. And so if you look back through how these companies evolve, I think sometimes we have this kind of like need for a story of we had a single brilliant idea and somebody willed it into being. And, and I don't know how often that occurs. Now, if you do that and you get it right, great. You're like, you're brilliant. Yeah, congrats. Right? Most people get it wrong or like different degrees of wrong. And so usually, and, I, and this is kind of a trick I learned when I was working with Eric Ries which was, you know, well, what would hurt to go check? You know, because I watched him in front of very powerful 
corporate officers say, I know this is the right solution. He's like, yeah, but what if we went and checked? Like, I'm sure you're right, but can we just go check? And I was like, there's no way this is going to work. And it worked. (laughs) So I've, I've borrowed, you know, tips from him over the years. And so essentially there are some people that aren't going to be coachable on this method and they're not going to want to listen and they're going to explain away everything uh, and all the evidence that doesn't adhere to their worldview. And I'm not going to reach them anyway. So I've learned yeah. over time to just kind of cut my losses there and go, okay, I'm, I'm not trying to inflict help on you here. <laughs> if you like go and see, and if you get it right, Hey, kudos to you for getting it right. But I just think it's so hard to get it right that way. It's just like, one in a million, maybe. I don't know even what the odds are. It's, yeah. I feel like for normal, or like everyday people, it's just, man, I'm going to iterate through this till I find something that works. And that's why I think some of this content resonates. Uh, everyone wants to be the next Steve Jobs, right? But it's also fair to say that some people have very little appetite for even the concept of experimentation. Like they like having an opinion, they lock that in very early on. You kind of touched on that just now. They definitely think it's going to work. They don't want it to be disproven. The very idea of being disproven is anathema to that sort of person. And they also think this stuff sounds like it's going to take loads of time. Like We don't have time to do all these experiments because we've got to start building stuff. Are there any techniques you've managed to use through your consulting to actually try and defeat that type of argument? There are some things like assumptions mapping is something that I help create. I first learned it from Jeff and Josh, who wrote Lean UX. I worked with at Neo. Yep. And then I just adapted it a lot over the years. And it really looks different now. It's still a two by two, but it's got different you know, labels. Everyone and, loves right? a two by two. Yeah, everyone loves a two by two. And it's got desirable, viable, feasible thinking in it. And so from design thinking. And, and so that's where I keep coming back to. So I'm like, okay, if you know this is a great idea, okay, if I can start asking you questions about, well, what's your risk? I'm sure it's a great idea. What's your risk around desirability? Like the customer, what do you think has to be true for this to work? And then What's your risk around viability? Like, what are the financial numbers? Like, what does this like, should we do this kind of risk? What are those you're worried about? And then feasibility, like, can you build it? What there are you worried about that would have to be true? And I realize the people that say there's like, I know this is going to work. They still have stuff they're worried about. And, And so when I start teasing that out in that framing of desirable, viable, feasible, I can usually get them to a point where they're like, man, this one thing. Yeah, that's got to be true, but I just don't have evidence yet. And that's the thing. They know it's going to work, but they don't have the evidence yet to say it's going to work, but they know it's going to. And so there's something endearing about that. I, I get it. It's like the reality distortion field and all that. But if I can get them to that point where I'm just, I'm not saying your idea is bad and I'm not saying it's not going to work. I'm saying, okay, from a desirability, viability, feasibility point of view, what are you worried about the most? And then they seem to open up a bit. And then when we go to experimentation, we can say, let's just focus on that thing that like has to be true that you don't have enough evidence of it being true yet. Let's go focus there. We don't have to experiment on everything. Let's just start there. And there's something about that conversation that it tends to work. It tends to open people up. And I'm not judgmental in the sense of, I usually don't tell people again that their ideas are stupid. It's usually like, well, <laughs> for this to work, what part of these three kind of you know themes, desirable, wild, feasible, are going to potentially throw a wrench into this? And I've worked with so many different kinds of companies over the years. And that, those three themes tend to hold up no matter what kind of company I'm working with. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the things that I found interesting in the book as well is this idea of continuous experimentation as well, which obviously treads very similar themes to things like Teresa Torres, continuous discovery as well. Like this idea that one way to potentially diffuse this idea that 
this is going to be like a big long effort that you're going to have to do and it's going to slow you down is to be experimenting all the time so you kind of know the answers more or less before time becomes a factor is that something that you recommend trying to build this kind of continuous loop all the time or is it something that you kind of have to spin up as and when you start to have these great ideas because i mean how can you experiment on stuff if you've not had a new idea recently i guess well the risk moves around right so you know, you figure out desirability and then it might move back to feasibility or down to viability and it kind of moves around as you go. And so I do think once you start, it's not like, oh, we nailed it now. We don't have to experiment anymore and we just scale it. You get other, like other kinds of risk come through the, the idea of scaling, right? And so I feel like it moves around. I do think the idea of talking to your customers every week, which I love from uh, Teresa Torres, I am a huge proponent of. I think she's definitely influenced my thinking over the years. When it comes to just overall experimentation, I, you know, it's not like you run one experiment and then unlock millions of dollars and then <laughs> you just go build the thing, you know, like we had a webinar on earlier this year where I worked with a company where I helped them unlock like $10 million through this process, but it wasn't like over a week, you know, it took them a while yeah. of working through it to understand, oh, wow, there's a huge opportunity here. And so I, I do think you know, when I talk to people that are just really down on this method, I feel like they're just mentally exhausted because they're constantly questioning everything. And, and so I do think you have to have some kind of balance to this, right? So where it worries me is when, if you think like discovery and delivery, right? If it's just all delivery and no discovery, that worries me. It would also worry me if it's you're just, just doing discovery and you're not delivering anything. So I do think there's a balance to be said of like over time, earlier on, there's more discovery and a little bit of delivery. And then as you grow, there's more delivery and a little bit of discovery. But I would get really nervous if it was zero at either end, right? If it was just like yeah. all delivery or all discovery. I, I do think you need a balance of that. And I think it's just way, it's just part of the work, right? It's not like something you do in extra yeah. time. It's not something you do nights and weekends. It's just part of work. And we need to like capacity plan for that and just just say, okay, this is stuff we have to allocate people to do. And, and, and we have to do this as part of our everyday work. and. And so I do think, you know, the message has changed over the last 10 years and we are making progress and I don't have to, you know, like people know what lean startup is now. They mostly know what design thinking is too. And so I do think we're making progress there, but there's a lot of work to be done because I don't want it to come across as something you do just in your spare time. It is part of, you know, your work. Yeah. It's about getting away from that feature factory mentality, right? Where everything's just being handed down from on high and you just like that this is something that i've been struggling with a little bit recently as well this whole concept of like constant delivery through scrum and sort of agile frameworks which everyone's just saying is you've got to get faster you've got to get faster you've got to keep doing increments and it's like that's fine but you've got to be delivering stuff that's valuable and not just delivering stuff for the sake of it so completely agree that the concept of it being an optional extra is as with discovery something that just has to be put away and that's really where the battle has to be won with some of these maybe laggardly founders and laggardly ceos that maybe haven't quite caught up with that thinking i love the agile community like i'm I've been a huge proponent of that for years and i think what drew me to where i'm at now is that i used agile like the process right to just iteratively deliver things nobody cared about it was like efficiently <laughs> creating waste basically which is like not the point of agile right yeah you want to be able to repeatedly deliver stuff that it, even in the manifesto it talks about value right like customer value and all that yeah. But it's really, you need to pull this stuff upstream. And, and whether it's under the framing of Agile or whatever you want to call it, 
but the idea of like you need to iterate through the problem space too, right? And I do think that's why we see this combination of like lean startup design thinking, agile really take root in different companies. But that's how I got. I mean, that's how I got pulled into it. I was like doing standups and doing planning and retrospectives and all that stuff. And then at the end of the day, nobody cared. <laughs> it was just like <laughs> nobody cares that you went through all that work and you stood up and talked about what you were doing that day and had cards on the wall and had a retrospective to improve yourself. Like if it doesn't deliver value to the customer, they don't care how you're making it. Right. And so yeah, exactly. I do think that's how I got pulled more upstream over the years, but I'm a huge believer in it. It's just, yeah, it's what you're putting into that system does matter. And, and you don't want to just efficiently create waste. <laughs> yeah. You do want to create stuff that matters usually. Yeah. No, it's, it's easily misused. I think is the biggest problem. And that's something that hopefully you know, books like yours, but like tweezers and all the other books out and about around this sort of topic can, and try and help persuade people a little bit about. Now, I'm sure this is massively dependent on the type of thing you're trying to build, but if you had one piece of advice for a founder or a product manager or just someone who had an idea, someone's got an idea with no history of experimentation and no idea where to start, aside from buying this handsome box set, what's one experimental technique that maybe they could start with to try and dip their toe in the water and start to get a bit of feedback and understand whether their idea is any good at all? Wow, there's so many. And I would normally say start, because the way I, if I format these in the book and the way Alex and I did this was um, you have discovery and you have uh, validation, right? And so uh, that's the framing we chose. We kind of really took inspiration from Steve Blank's work with Four Steps the Epiphany, like customer discovery, customer validation. And, you know, I normally would say talk to customers here, but actually I, I might lean more towards the concierge experiment. And, and that's kind of out of... The, the flow that I normally would recommend, because usually I would say, you know, do some customer interviews, do some, you know, paper prototyping, do some clickable wireframes, get an explainer video and a landing page with a call to action and like that flow. But I feel like just doing it manually, like if you already think it's an amazing idea, then don't waste a lot of money building a like elaborate thing. Just like try to do it manually for a bit and see what you learn from the experience. Yeah. And basically in that, experiment like concierge because you're doing it manually it doesn't scale and that's okay and you're testing all three themes you're testing desirability because you're testing it the interaction with the customer you can charge for it there's this kind of weird stigma that like unless it's a product you can't charge for it that i don't really agree with that (laughs) you can charge for a thing you deliver manually right and then feasibility is like can you do it you know what are the things around actually performing and executing on it and so that one i love i feel like it doesn't get enough fanfare you're right like, there isn't enough like enough of teams using that really like that amazing experiment but i feel concierge is, is something a great way to understand how this works because it's going to challenge you to say is there anything at the core of this and can i even do it manually and deliver value and charge for it and then build from there because you're going to learn so much even even though it doesn't scale and so that's one i would normally point out i really wouldn't do it right away but i mean it's a great one to to use and just get kind of warmed up to the idea of, okay, this is what an experiment could kind of look like. Yeah, I'm quite taken with the idea of concierge experiments. And I think that it, you know, there, there's obviously a lot of really valid use cases. I think that the one watch out that I always think about, and I've seen it before, is when that concierge almost becomes the actual product because they never work out how to scale it. And it's like they don't have like an exit plan or an exit ramp to actually get that and, and you know make it more scalable and actually build that in, in a way that, that can be that doesn't need to have all these people behind it. So I think that's my my one concern with that. But as, yeah, I completely agree that as an actual early stage technique, it's a fantastic way to just work out what could happen. 
because if you can't do stuff manually with the honorable exception of things like machine learning and even frankly with some of the machine learning tasks that you do you could probably still have a stab in excel right like there's it's just a great way to just work out if there's anything there at all so yeah that's something that we can hopefully get a bunch of my listeners to take a look at yeah i think one of the traps you you point out here is that you could end up being a concierge forever yeah i do think giving yourself permission to say if i do this more than n number hours a day i give myself permission to automate that in some way yeah and so if you set that little threshold right and you hit it then great give yourself permission to like invest time and money maybe there's some software you can use to automate things right but if you never hit the bar right and we've seen this at some startups before back when i was at neo we used to do this and we we mentored some startups that never hit that bar we said hey in number of hours a day, if you hit that bar, give yourself permission to automate. And they never hit the bar. They never filled up their day with enough of the manual stuff. Yeah. And so it, it's a really interesting way to look at it. You could say, well, maybe there isn't enough demand here to automate. But it, if there is enough, it, give myself permission to invest in the automation and get out of this kind of hamster wheel, I might feel, of like just doing the stuff manually. So I do think that's a little trick maybe to get people out of that loop. Yeah, 100%. And where can people find you after this if they want to maybe find out about the next book or the next edition of the book when it's going to come out or just find out a little bit more about experimentation in general? Yeah, I, I would almost never say this in the past, but you can find me on LinkedIn <laughs> quite easily. Uh, I've leveled up my meme game on LinkedIn to uh, quite a impressive popularity at the moment. <laughs> so I'm actually active on LinkedIn, which, wow, like going into the year, I never thought I would say that. Uh, I'm also pretty active on Twitter <laughs> still at, at David J. Bland. And then I have uh, my company Precoil, P-R-E-C-O-I-L.com, where you know you can see a lot of the offerings there. But yeah, I mean, I'm pretty active on all the socials and internets. But basically, <laughs> if if you just search David G. Bland, you're going to find me somewhere. Either a like webinar I did ten years ago, or something that will lead to me. So uh, yeah, and then the books in twenty different languages. Isn't it amazing? Twenty different languages around the world. So a lot. There's a good chance. If you want the book, you're going to find it somewhere at like the bookstores of the world. Have you done the audio book yourself yet, or is that still to come? I guess it's not an easy book to audio book, right? I have not. I was thinking about that the other day, and I'm like, what would the audio book of this <laughs> sound like? So, like, this one is five dots, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then three dots, and then one dot, and then. You're going to measure this. I mean, I have a great radio voice, so I could probably pull it off, but I'm not <laughs> sure that's in the near-term strategy there for our publisher. But yeah, eventually if an audiobook comes around, you know, there might be a way we can adapt it. It's just such a visual book. I think it'd be really tough yeah. to pull it off. Oh, uh, well, we'll see. If we get one more year of pandemic, you never know. That's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really appreciate you taking the time to chat about the book and some of the themes within it. Hopefully we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>